Welcome to Tool Talk from Exegetical Tools, where we discuss sound practices and stupendous resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth. Here again today with Todd Casewater, founder of Exegetical Tools. Todd, how you doing, man? Good. Thanks for having me back again. Yes, so wonderful. Recorded an episode earlier, um, just generally opening things up, and we've heard from a few people since then. I'm excited today to talk a little bit more specifically about the Apostles' Creed. Yep. Uh, so Exegetical Tools, Fontes Press, and, and, and outworking of Exegetical Tools has recently published a discipleship guide through the Apostles' Creed called Grounded in the Faith mm-hmm. by you. By me. Todd A. Scasewater. What does the A stand for? Our listeners are dying to know. That's secret. That's privy information. Oh, okay. That's uh, Andrew, Todd Andrew Scasewater. I really wish you would have kept it secret. Well, it would have been way more interesting. That's okay. We could have people guess and write in for prizes. You could. Well, you know, I've probably only met about 10 people in my life named Todd. And several times in my early childhood, I considered going by Andrew just because I thought it was more Mm -hmm. of a normal mainstream kind of name. Okay. But uh, there you have it. It's a very manly name. Andrew. So if you want to call me Andrew from now on, that's fine. Okay. I'm going to go with that. Sure. You missed my Greek joke. Did I? I said it's a very manly name. Oh, man. I missed that. Nailed it. I don't know what Todd comes from. So. Or skate water, for that matter. That's terrible. That's I could terrible guess. Joke. It was a really it was a, bad joke. It was a dad joke, man. I'm not there. Fun story for yeah, our listeners. Sure. They will enjoy this immensely before okay. we talk about the Apostles' Creed. I was talking to my 92-year-old neighbor who's way more physically active than I am. Red is his name. That's sad. He's an awesome man. Well, he, I was, it was supposed to highlight him, but it's, okay. also, kind yeah. Of, yeah. it's also kind of a reflection okay. on me. And Todd stopped me on my way down here, actually. Just wanted to chat. And... Todd just out of the blue goes, I heard you're going to be a dad. And for at the time of this recording, at least, I had no idea I was going to be a dad. Still don't, <laughs> because I am like 95% certain I'm not going to be a dad soon. Okay. So this joke might, might, might find me on the other side of a surprise. Oh, interesting. Um, Lauren and I would, are, are excited to have a family someday, not huh. planning to have a family right now yeah. as we finish school. So I'll, I'll keep our listeners posted if I find out later this afternoon. Uh, but I don't, I just think red got confused. Okay. Well, that's or he's prophetic or he's prophetic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll test that prophecy if it comes to pass, right? And that's the test. We might end up doing an episode on how to get through school with kids. That I think would be one of our most listened to episodes. It might actually half listened to episodes (laughs) while people are doing a million other things. And while they're sleeping and their kid jumping on them. Exactly. Trying to listen to the exegetical tools, tool talk podcast, because it's so valuable to them. (laughs) So the, the apostles creed. Yeah. Okay, we've we've come up with this resource. You're actually going through, went through it, kind of tested it with a, a college student. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, we so I started out. I was just trying to um, come up with a guide that would essentially ground people in the faith, as the title suggests. So, let's say you preach a sermon. Someone, you know, whatever, I don't, however you do your services. Let's say you do an altar call. Someone comes up and says, I want to give my life to Christ. You lead them through the prayer and whatnot. Um, and then afterward, what do you do with them? You know, so you, you, if that's your kind of your process, then you believe they're saved now. They said the prayer. And um, what are you going to do with them? Well, the next step for me, because I've seen so much kind of revolving door discipleship, they come in, they get saved, they come to church for a few weeks, and then they fall away. You don't, you don't see them ever again. But what if maybe they just had a, a poor understanding of the gospel? What if they didn't really understand who Jesus was? What if they were responding to an emotion or to uh, a works-based 
theology that they got out of the sermon, even if you communicated things so clearly. Uh, once I once heard a story from Tim Keller who said he preached the most beautiful, clear, gospel-centered sermon that you, he's ever preached in his life, and he was just so happy with himself. And right afterward, this guy came up and he said, you know, Pastor, you said everything today I've always believed. God helps those who help themselves. And, and he said, so, you know, it goes to show you that it doesn't matter how clear your preaching is, people can hear what they want to hear. So this guide is intended to be a brief commentary in the Apostles' Creed with some discussion questions for comprehension and a little bit of kind of self-examination, so that with those people who have just started following Christ or they're getting ready to be baptized or they've just been baptized, you can ensure that they actually understand what the gospel is and who the Father, Son, and Spirit are. Now, what was the original question that I didn't answer? <laughs> um, I, it was very vague. So very you, vague. You, you okay. did a good job. But, so you and I both, and probably a, a good amount of our listeners, I would guess, are from kind of a, what we'd call a low church tradition. Mm-hmm. Not high on liturgy. We don't typically – we might affirm the creeds, hopefully affirm the sure. creeds, but maybe not reciting the creeds. Sometimes ever, in, in a lot of churches, none of the churches I grew up in ever recited a creed once. Mm-hmm. Um and some of that is as a result of kind of this Reformation commitment to Sola Scriptura and some of these things. But our, our Reformers all loved and recited and used Very true. creeds. So firstly, why do you think there is a common suspicion among some of our – and again, this is our own tradition, so not, not poking fun or pointing fingers. Um, why is there maybe a suspicion of creedal formulas? And why do you think there's a little bit of a resurgence – in interest among us low church guys? Some of us, yeah. Well, the reason I think that so many low church, low churches and, and their leadership and even their people are scared of creeds is because, first of all, a lot of evangelicals have come from a Catholic upbringing. And so the Catholic upbringing, with the use of the creeds and the catechisms, they when they see that in an evangelical church, in their worship service or whatever, it actually... Um, can can scare them. It, they can say, Ooh, that's, uh, that's what we used to do in the Catholic Church, and so that's bad. Because for a lot of evangelical converts from Catholicism, uh, anything from their old tradition is bad and everything in their new tradition is good. Of course, their new tradition depends on what type of tradition they came into, right? So I think that's one of the reasons. I think that another reason is just simply this idea that liturgy or um, recitations of things or prepared prayers, things like that, are disingenuous. They're boring. They lack passion. And especially coming out of kind of like the the Second Great Awakening and this kind of evangelical preaching by Finney and others that's just full of emotion and passion and decision, uh, the liturgy is kind of the opposite of that, right? And it's um, despite the fact that it's filled with scriptural language and it's filled with stuff that's been tested over time and, and beautiful, eloquent statements of the faith, it's just um, because it's set and it's repeated, let's say you recite it every week, they just find it as lifeless. So I, I wish that weren't the case, and I think there are actually ways that you can integrate creeds and, and liturgy into low church worship services in a way that people might not even know you're doing it, or in a way that is not repetitive and lifeless. I think there's a middle way, and we don't have to shun their use altogether. What's the middle way? Tell us about it. The, 
Come on, middle, you, can't, you can't tease us with this middle way. The middle way. Okay, well, that's for another episode. Oh, okay. No, no. Okay, so, well, let me give you one example. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not the paragon of of doing this or anything, I'm, but there was, um, I was preaching a sermon that uh, included the idea, the allusion to the resurrection, or a statement regarding the resurrection, and so we picked some songs that focused on the the resurrection because that's what the sermon was going to be about. That was kind of the concluding point and the main thrust of the message. And so we had a couple songs, and that's usually where it stops, right? It's like if you have in a low church, a Baptist church, or maybe a Christian church, or non-denom, you know, if you have some songs that match the sermon, it's almost like, the Holy Spirit has been here. You know, like <laughs> the Holy Spirit took over and just organized it's the height our service. Of liturgy. Yeah, that's the height of liturgy in our in our services because and sometimes it honestly does happen just sporadically. Like um there might be two or three th- songs that just play into your sermon. Or recently we've been doing some scripture reading, just systematically reading through a book of the Bible together as a congregation. Uh, to follow that command, not to neglect the public reading of Scripture, and in one case, the 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 reading from Malachi matched up with one of the songs I was doing very very well, and I didn't intend it; it just happened. And so, for us low church people, were like, "Oh wow, God is working," you know. But of course, being in the liturgy. Uh, in, the, in the higher churches, these liturgies all fit together already. You know, like they've worked this out, and um, it's it, that's not a coincidence when that happens. It's very purposeful. So, the middle way I think is to try to take the creeds and the um, and, and liturgical elements and to work them in in a way that's not incredibly obvious, not incredibly dull, not formulaic. But in that sermon where we had the resurrection, I in- included the creed, the Apostles' Creed, for the entire church to recite in the middle of this song on the resurrection. So we kind of brought the band down and just kind of played music in the background, and then the worship leader had the people recite the creed. And the creed reinforced that for ages, for millennia, Christians around the world have believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that a man walked out of his own grave and proved that he was God. And that was a kind of a sneaky way to get the creed in there. And I actually had a, a lady come up to me afterward, and she just said, I, I love that so much. I used to be in a Lutheran church, and we used to recite the creed every week. And I just felt like I felt so touched because that's what I grew up with was reciting the creed. Thank you so so much for doing that. For everybody else, it was a new thing. And they enjoyed it because it wasn't repetitive. For this one lady, it was going back to her roots, and she appreciated it. So um, sprinkling it in there, sneaking it in, and doing it in a way that actually plays into your service and isn't just a formula, you know, like, oh, we need a reading here, or we need to recite a creed here because that's what so-and-so liturgy says we're supposed to do. Whether you're sprinkling it in or immersing it in, either way, <laughs> oh, come on. either way, it's a, I'm just... Just a little more bit more dad fun. jokes. More dad jokes, killing it. That's a very niche joke. Though. <laughs> that that is. That's it? a very niche yeah. dad joke. Um, no, that that's a that's a good word too. And and right, it's you don't have to wholesale adopt an entire system of liturgy or go through you know years A, B, and C on right. you know the daily you know whatever. Um, you don't have to necessarily adopt that if your tradition doesn't already include that. Uh, but you don't have to chuck out all of this fantastic material that binds us to the rest of the church and reminds us of our common heritage, you know, yeah. um, helps us uh, to 
actually, I hope, put the spotlight on Scripture. Yeah. Because Scripture is where we derive all of this creedal information. Which brings us to a very specific and important question about the Apostles' Creed. Um, you've recently written about, uh, and in a, a little bit in a dissertation as well, pretty mm-hmm. extensively, but also on the Exegetical Tools blog that people can check out on exegeticaltools.com, about what's called the Descent Clause in the Apostles' Creed. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the Descent Clause. Well, there's no controversy about it whatsoever, and everybody understands what it means. All right, it's been a great episode. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Perfect. Nailed it. And that's what people write PhDs about. Apparently. Yeah, no. So the Descent Clause, uh, this clause that he descended into hell, is how it's often translated in the English uh, version of the creed. So there are a lot of pastors, uh, one influential pastor being John Piper, who, you know, he said, I, I just don't, we recite the creed, but when we do it, I don't say that line. You know, I don't, I just don't say he descended into hell because stated like that, it's, it's very problematic because what is hell? Hell in the English language nowadays is reserved for the place of eternal torment for, for the damned, Right. So it's it's a place of uh, not the holding place of the saints or anything like that, or the holding place of the Old Testament saints and, and the, the wicked prior to judgment. So to say he went into hell is really strange because that's not where the saints go, right? So the descent clause itself was other people have a problem with this because not just because of the meaning and how strange it is, but because of the uh, how late the clause entered the creed, right? So there's um, commonly what people say is it didn't enter the creed until about the 7th century. Uh, Grudem has this in a little article in Jets that he wrote that's been pretty influential, and uh, there's been a, I think it was like the Gospel Coalition or some website like that had a blog where someone posted, and, and um, I, I hear people say a lot, a lot. It's actually not exactly the case. Uh, first of all, it does enter into the creed in different locations earlier. For, uh, Rufinus is a, a father who's not well known, but he has a commentary on the creed. And if you read that commentary, he's from uh, Achaia. I'm not sure how you actually pronounce that, but Achaia, A-Q, uh, etc. So uh, he's from this region, Achaia. And in his version of the creed that they used, they actually had the descent clause. And this is late 4th, early 5th century. So around the 400 AD mark. So as early as that, you had a location that recited he descended into hell. Uh, some people have tried to argue that there he wasn't referring to Christ descending into the underworld, but rather he's just talking about burial. But if you read the entire commentary on the Apostles' Creed by Rufinus, you'll see that that's not true. He really does believe that Christ descended into the underworld, and that would actually be better language to use than hell. We'll talk about that in a minute. So if you have this length, this descent clause as early as around 400 A.D. in one version of the creed, and remember the creed's a very organic development. It starts out as a very small uh, statement of some beliefs, Father, Son, Spirit, and it kind of grows and stuff is added. It's all scriptural and biblical languages, biblical language that's in the creed, but the he descended into hell doesn't actually kind of get into the solidified version until about the 7th century, right? So that's the point where kind of nearly universally that it's kind of entered the creed and it's there to stay. But here's the thing that's really important. Pretty much all of the fathers believed that Christ descended into the underworld. So whether it's in the creed or not is really not the question. The question is, did the fathers believe that Christ really did descend in the And all throughout their writings, and I have 
this kind of extensive documentation in a section of my dissertation looking at Ephesians 4, 9, and 10, where it refers to Christ descending into the lower parts of the earth. And in the Greek version of the, uh, of the creed, which the Greek version isn't as ancient, but uh, that language is drawn straight from Ephesians 4, 9. It's just kind of, uh, it's, it's, the morphology is a little different, but it's the same version of he descended into the lower parts. And the Latin version, he descended into the underworld. Is really, it's not really equivalent to hell, what we'd say hell nowadays. But so um, whatever that clause in the creed means, I, I think is drawing from Ephesians 4.9. And in that passage, uh, I argue in my dissertation, uh, it's not a popular view, but based on the language, that language of katabino, to go down, and then uh katotaras, the, the lower parts, the lowest, that language together, especially combined with the earth, um, outside, of the biblical langu- outside of the biblical writings and in the Septuagint, it's referring to a descent into the underworld. And mythologies that referred to God's descending into the underworld in the ancient world were all over the place. It's a very common idea, so it's not a strange idea. So to have language that elsewhere refers to people descending into the underworld, to have that idea as being per- per- pervasive in mythologies of the ancient world, I, I don't think anybody would have been reading Ephesians 4.9 in, in Paul's context and not have been thinking that Christ actually descended into the underworld. And when you look at the in verse 10, the purpose of the descent and the ascent together is in order that he might fill all things. So this actually fits into the context very well, the, the idea of a descent into the underworld, because he's now gone to the lower the lowest parts of creation and the uppermost parts of creation in the heavenlies. And he's demonstrated his sovereignty over both realms. In the underworld, He, through his resurrection, he proclaimed victory over death. He demonstrated that the grave could not hold him. And in the after the ascension, he's now got his enemies under his feet, you know, in, in uh, fulfillment of the psalm, which Ephesians says explicitly elsewhere. So... Whether or not the clause actually enters in the creed early or not, that's not actually what really matters as far as whether we can recite the clause when we're uh, reciting the creed. What actually matters is, first of all, that this idea is drawn from the Bible. It's drawn primarily from Ephesians 4, 9, and 10, I believe, because whenever the fathers are referring to Christ's descent, they're often drawing on that language of Ephesians 4. They're also drawing on the language of 1 Peter 3, and I know there's a lot of positions on what the 1 Peter 3 thing is doing, but if that's also referring to this descent, then you have two passages that the fathers continually draw on for the idea of a descent. So it's a biblical idea. It's not just an extra-biblical creedal idea that some weird ancient fathers threw in there. It's a biblical idea uh, that actually bears itself out through exegesis, and the fathers themselves prior to this entering the creed, all pretty much universally believed that Christ had descended into the underworld after his death. I mean, where else did he go? Where was he during the three days? Um, So anyway, that's why I feel comfortable uh, reciting the creed as as it currently is, reciting the descent clause, and especially thinking of this idea that the, the purpose of the descent is to express Christ's sovereignty over death and the grave. I think that's really powerful imagery, and it really plays in to the following line that refers to his uh, resurrection from the dead. Now, forgive me if you've already mentioned this. How do you suggest, then, if we have problems with the English word hell and, and the concept that it promotes um, or that we import into it for understanding— how would you encourage uh, whether pastors or uh, worship leaders to implement the creed in 
their liturgy if they're going to be reciting with their church they should they just say hell and kind of try to explain in the off time or what that's that's a great question i'm glad you brought that back up the greek phrase as i said in ephesians 4 9 is the lower parts of the earth the lowest parts of the earth so that's actually ambiguous that doesn't translate literally as hell or hades or sheol or anything it's just lower parts of the earth in in latin um it's referring to the underworld, the, the place of the dead, so in the Latin version of the creed, right? So in both cases, it does not, it's not equivalent to the English word hell, which, as I explained, nowadays we, we tell people to euphemistically, right, go to hell. You know, it's, it's, it's not a place that you want to go. It's the place of eternal torment. The, the lake of fire in Revelation, I think, is what actually uh, is equivalent to this. So the where did Christ go? Well, traditionally he went to Hades or Sheol, the the holding place of the dead, not to the eternal lake of fire that comes at the consummation. So there are uh, you, you can't you can't really uh, if you're going with the Latin version, translate it into English, you might say uh, either the underworld or I think even better what a lot of English translations of the creed say is descended to the dead. That's actually the um, translation I use in my discipleship guide. It says he was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. Uh, there are several. There are some translations that use that. And then after I posted that blog on exegetical tools, I had a couple of people. One guy he messaged me. He said, "Hey, I'm from the German Lutheran Church, and our official German version of the creed it, it says to the dead as well." And then someone who's in a Spanish context, he's on a mission trip in Mexico right now. He says, "There's a I have a Spanish version." of the creed that also says descended to the dead. So there are quite a few versions that translate that correctly. And um, it, it, it's not just a just kind of a pedantic thing, because I actually, when we did the creed, as I was telling you earlier, that week we decided to recite it, um, someone thought there, there might be a problem with saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Because, mm. uh, you know, as we're talking about being in a low church here. It's a and, good Protestant. And the low churches are, uh, you know, they're not typically too friendly to the Catholic Church. But so that word itself, you know, Catholic just means worldwide or the general church or the church universal, right? So in my guide here, I've translated that as uh, the Holy Universal Church. And then I actually have a little footnote. Um, which people make people made fun of me a lot for putting footnotes in here. Uh, other people, as I showed it to them, uh, the kind of lay people. Like, uh, but it says this word is usually translated Catholic with a lowercase c, which means general or worldwide, not Catholic with a capital C in the sense of the Roman Catholic Church. So as people who might not have that kind of linguistic education or background or experience in seminary, uh, this guide kind of gives them a little... Um, a little way to navigate that issue, like uh, if they have people who came from the Catholic Church or if they're uncomfortable themselves with that line of the creed, uh, I translate that here as universal to help them out and have that little footnote. Somehow low-C Catholic, as a phrase, doesn't really roll off the tongue no. in a corporate recitation, right? Not exactly, yeah. I believe in the holy low-C Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just, doesn't, just doesn't come off the tongue quite so Not well. Exactly. No, that's, a, that's awesome. And typically, toward the end of our episodes, we uh, often will ask what resources someone's using to help better understand their scriptures. And I would just encourage our listeners to go read the creeds, read, read through the creeds, especially the Apostles' Creed. Go check out the Grounded in the Faith on the Exegetical Tools website if you're up for it. Um, if you're on our website listening to this, there should be a link somewhere 
We'll probably put a link in the description, even on like our uh, Apple podcast and some of our other feeds. But go check that out. See if it's something you could use, uh, whether in discipling a new believer or just for yourself to kind of bone up on this uh, low-C Catholic faith that we hold and better understanding what the earliest Christians understood the scriptures to mean. Because that's what we're doing, right? Is we want to better understood what the earliest Christians believed the scriptures meant, not elevating that tradition to the level of scripture, but using it to get at scripture. These are exegetical tools that we can use, and the creeds are themselves exegetical tools, especially rightly understood. And so I think that's really helpful. Todd, thanks for being here, man. Thanks a lot for having me again. Mm -hmm.